Welcome to The Romantic Side of Suspense with Sarah Hemmerker. In each episode, she'll talk with your favorite romantic suspense authors. They will take you behind the scenes of the writing process, giving excerpts from their writing, and share stories about their writing life. Home Team by Dave Pratt Sam Anthem has always been a team player, leading his home team on secret missions around the world and chasing down bad guys for the U.S. government. But Sam has never had a place to call home or someone to go home to. Consuelo Zamora has been serving as a missionary nurse, but her work has led her to be forced to work with some South American drug lords in order to provide medicine for the common people. After being rescued by Sam and his home team, Consuelo settles into a new position in Olympia, Washington, to work with a community center there. But somehow, trouble always follows her, and Sam Anthem seems to always be nearby to save the day. When Sam is forced on a two-month vacation, he's introduced to a former covert ops soldier turned pastor. But the vacation takes a turn when the home team comes under attack. As the team fights to stay alive against an unknown adversary, Sam begins to wonder if there's more to life than just the job. With his life on the line, Sam must decide between the job or his newfound faith and possible love. On this episode of The Romantic Side of Suspense, I'm talking with Dave Pratt, who's a native of most of the West Coast of the United States and now makes his home in Western Washington. He's a freelance writer and author of many articles and novels, and I'm really excited that we're going to get to talk about writing. So welcome to my show, Dave. Well, thank you very much. So um, as a freelance writer, you're talking to another freelance writer <laughs> who's written hundreds and hundreds of articles. I don't even know how many. Um, so what is your favorite type of article to write? I'm just curious. So, When I've written articles in the past, I, I had a passion for horses. I did a lot of performance horse training as well as uh, showing and rodeo types events. And I ended up writing a lot about that. Um, I've been publishing like Western Horsemen and Equus yeah. and some of the national magazines, uh, a fair number of articles about that. But that sort of morphed. That sort of morphed. I ended up um, doing a lot of additional articles related to animals for some reason. My veterinary te technician journals and things like this where I was, I was contracted to publish a series and so kind of ended up going that way because I think I was drawn to, to writing articles where action dominates mm. and where we could actually show rather than tell what we're after. And I think, especially in performance horse stuff, it, it came across as a natural passion and that active sort of voice. I love that active voice. So Yeah. Yeah. Um, I one of my favorite things to write about is the convenience store industry. <laughs> Funny enough, because I've been writing for um, the one of their associations for years, and it's mm. just a lot of fun because everyone goes to convenience stores. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I know a lot of the inside stuff. It's just been, it's been, um, it's been fun to write kind of fun pieces like the history of Slurpees, uh, sure. you know, things like that. Sure. But like you said, it's just sometimes you can find a topic or topics and just have a lot of fun with it. Um, and, you know, always what? include them in your books too. Well, and I think, I think a lot of my experience, I, I wrote a humor column for a weekly newspaper for mm -hmm. about two years. And a lot of my experience came from trying to, you know, pack 
900 words with action and humor and, and, and stuff like you say, people can relate to everything from those commutes where people are eating their breakfast and putting on their makeup and, and trying to drive and, and do work at the same time. And, and there's a lot of humor to be found out there. So when we can write what we know, it really makes it fun and it really exercises me as a writer. I love it. I love it. Yeah. And I, and it's such a different writing from fiction writing, um, you know, cause you, need to tell the truth. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm not absolutely. making things up before they get me. <laughs> no, it's all true. Uh, mm-hmm. but it's, um, you know, but it is a different kind of writing and I find mm-hmm. that it can just be, um, use a different part of my brain. I feel like actually than than the, um, than the fiction writing. Did you have, a, did you have a hard time switching to writing fiction after writing nonfiction or not at all? When I, when I started in 1982 writing, as I, as a, as a Lieutenant in the army, I was braced by a captain when I was brand new in that career. And so it said, it stood me at attention literally and said, Pratt, you can't write, you can't speak, fix it or you'll fail and walked off. And it sort of shook me to my bones. And I went and looked for a, a correspondence course in writing. The only one that was available was writer's digest short story course. Mm. So I signed up and did it. <laughs> I did it. And I published a professional article and my first piece of fiction in the Worcester Gazette up in hmm. what you call it, Worcester, Mass or Worcester, Massachusetts. And of the two, I just fell in love with fiction. I've written tons of nonfiction, you know, including project management books for what I teach and all, but my heart's always been in fiction. And when the idea for home team came up, it just, it flowed. It was, it was like a passion. It was something that doesn't make me tired. It doesn't feel like work. I just love fiction. I love it. So how do you fit it into, you know, you're, you, you're, you're still working. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of. Kind of. So how do you fit that in? How do you fit the fiction writing part into your, into your life? Well, the beauty was that, especially during the pandemic over the last three years, I actually shut down my project management business right after the pandemic started. I finished my last major project Mm -hmm. uh, working for, with the Mm -hmm. state government and law enforcement, uh, which also ties into the story that's definitely in the storyline. Um, and I ended up having more time. The only work I do now, um, is to teach at a college and I teach literally four days a month to do that hard four hard days, but, um, but that leaves me time to write and somewhere between that and grandkids and studying martial arts, which has been my life for 40 years. Um, I managed to sneak it in and, and it's when everything else is going on, sitting down and writing fiction I'm crafting the third novel in the series right now is something that it's like, for me, it's like breathing. It refreshes me. I love it. I just, I love creating it. So what do you find is the hardest part of writing fiction? Writing, the editing, writing the first draft is passion and it's fun. Yeah. And as so many other authors say, I feel absolutely free to write badly when I write the first edition yeah. Yeah. of an, of a novel. And then when I write the anywhere from the second through about the seventh edits and then send it out to my beta readers. Um, and I've got three or four that I use and then get their comments back. It's, it's, it's work. It's really hard crafting to make sure we you know, that you build that in. And then, uh, and then it gets fun again on that last draft, you know, yeah. that I send in. And then it's even more fun once it goes to the publisher's editor. I have a terrific editor who was so much fun to work with on this book. And, and Martin and I have this relationship where I find that 
he's generally right yeah. <laughs> when, in the changes he wants are. to make. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a better book. It's a better book yeah. after he's done. So I find the hard part is the editing is going and back and being critical, mm-hmm. asking the question of what doesn't need to be in there to tell the yeah. story, you know, and so on. And, and I want an action oriented four senses. I mean, you know, getting the senses involved book. And so that's the heavy lifting for me. Yeah. And I find that I like it if I can have a little more distance between when, (laughs) (laughs) when I finish myself edits and send it off to the editor. And when they get, they comes back to when I feel like it comes back too soon, this happens even in my freelance world (laughs) where I'm like, I don't want to see it again for like a day or two or a week. You know, don't oh. want, what is this? Why is this in my inbox again? <laughs> it's too soon, too close. I, I'm so with you because in this book, um, we had it edited over a period of about three months because of some other travel and so on that I was planning on doing after, you know, close to the near the far end of the pandemic. And, and we had to knock this book out this editing process in about three months. And so we did it in thirds. Hmm. So I, he would edit a third and I would I'd respond to it. So it was very rapid, like you're saying, yeah. but after we were done and I submitted the, we, well, actually Martin, the editor submitted the final copy to the managing editor of the publishing house. I'm like you, I was like, I needed to breathe. I didn't want to look at it for about another month. <clears throat> I wanted it to rest. And I found with my previous work, you know, even on articles, I tend to not go back and look at them for mm-hmm. some period of time, even after they're published. So I'm sort of like afraid that it never happened yeah. because it feels like it evolves. And it's like, yeah. and you start asking, where did those words come from? They actually sound good, but it couldn't have come from me. Right. But it did. <clears throat> and so I always wrestle with that dichotomy of, of loving it and sort of like wondering if it was, if I'm going to like it when I read it. And I actually do love this book. I actually do like this book. It's, it's a fun yeah. book. And the other, well, the other funny, this probably happens to you too, Dave, just mm-hmm. as a writer, sometimes I'll write something and I'll send it off. And I think that is the worst thing I've ever written, <laughs> in my whole entire, whether it's an article or a book. And then mm. generally I am like dead wrong. <laughs> I, I know, it, I know. Great. And I'm like, oh, okay. I mean, cause I mean, it's, this is not a false humility. Dude. This is a no, genuine, this was just like, look. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. You know, like I, I struggle with the opening or the, you know, whatever it was. And yeah, so I'm often. Well, I am blessed. You know, I learned early on from a woman who wrote uh, Harlequin romances, mm. you know, um, for she did like 80, Zelma did like 80 of them. And she said, the first thing you need to do is go find yourself some readers. Yeah. And if regardless of what you think about it, there's a time to be done and there's a time to ship it off to them. And if you can find people who don't love you too much to give you the truth which I work at, then yeah. they will come back and confirm that it's okay or you need to improve here. And if we can, if I can actually address that, their comments tend to be pretty darn good. And it gives me confidence to have included their comments in it. So I love that process. That helps me. Yeah. Really. And I think, um, I think there was a good, somebody mentioned this in a crit group I was in years and years ago, one of my early ones. And they said, look, you know, one person says it, maybe you can take it. Maybe you can't. Two <laughs> yeah. people say it. You better start paying attention. Yeah. And <laughs> I, I the same thing gets tripped up too. you know, too, too many, you know, so I'm like, that was really good advice. I mean, not that you don't pay attention to the one person, but mm-hmm. if it's the same passage and two people are like, I don't understand what's going on here. 
you got to think it's your, it's you, not them. <laughs> well, and I think, I think that's it. I think what I learned from technical writing, even when I've done a lot of that and, and even refereed articles and journals and stuff because of my previous occupation in healthcare um, is that if I could have someone who knew nothing about what I was writing, read it and understand it, then that would make me feel better, but not just one. I want like you two or three or four. And I have four beta readers most of the time and it's agony waiting for their comments. Yeah. But I know it's also always a better piece of writing when they get, when I consider their comments. Right. Yeah, no, and it's always good to get that feedback. Although it's funny because sometimes readers will, after it's published, they'll come and they'll say, well, this is wrong. This I'm like, yeah, okay. I really didn't need <laughs> that because the thing of it is, is that no book is going to be perfect. Nope. You know, and you True. hope for it to be as best as it can and not have egregious mistakes in it, you know, but you do your best and you just go, okay. Yeah. You know, <laughs> but I, don't I, I, tell me about all the nitpicking things because I really don't <laughs> want to know. I am so with you. I had a little re release party back in December for the book and you know, it came out in November and we had about 14 people over to the house that we communicate with a lot. And one of the, one of the persons came up to me and said afterwards, well, and I gave them all signed copies, mm -hmm. you know, nice, kind of nice. like a release thing. And, and one of them came up, would you like me to give you comments and a review afterwards? And I said, well, no, <laughs> no, I mean, no, really not. That book is in, it's in print. I mean, there it's done. Yeah. It's the way it's going to be. I hope you like it. And, you know, and, and it turns out she did, she did. Yeah. Right? So, and I, and I, I love that. And in this case, I just got a call from a, a retired army ranger who is, is there's one, there's sort of a framework for that a little bit. And some of the mm -hmm. characters who liked the book and asked to have lunch with me yeah. just to, just to talk about it. And so for me, that's an affirmation. But if he started to give me a critique, I'd probably say, yeah, well, this is a short lunch. <laughs> well, at least, at least that, at least that person at your book law asked you before doing it. It's exactly that, right. That, yeah. You know, because we all get the emails with all the stuff that's, you know, the, you know, I think I had one person and I remember this was several books ago and years. Anyway, they were just like, started to tell me all that was wrong with it and all this, uh, I mean, really like harsh stuff. And I was like, I was mm -hmm. feeling a little bit, I mean, you know, devastated a little bit. Cause you know, you don't want people, I mean, she was like emailing me or something about it. I don't remember why she was emailing, but it, anyway. And I had someone else say, you know, it sounds like she's a frustrated writer herself because the things she was saying weren't really, they weren't, they were not really true. You know, the things that she was nitpicking on were like, well, yeah, you could write it that way, but you can also write it the way I wrote it because I, you know, no gr grammar. <laughs> well, I think, I think it's like, you know, I still compete in martial arts, um, not in the, the fighting sparring part, but in thing we call forms, very passive and it's routines that you get judged on. And I remember somebody came up to me and said, what well, you did this wrong and you did this wrong mm -hmm. and you did this wrong. And I was on the national team. So yeah. I'm thinking that's not bad. And it was a Pan American event and I won. And, you know, that person was so critical and I, you know, I, I, I accepted their comments, but in my mind, I was thinking I showed up, where are you? Yeah. And you know, when I, when I hear critics of writers so often with that are very, very free with their criticism, um, I have to think, you know, you have about a one in 450 chance to get your book published. You know, that's the general statistics and, and right. mine got there. So you know, for better or worse, 
I'm comfortable where, where it's at. Yeah. And thank you for your comments. Cause maybe right. there's even something I can learn from. Right. 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 Maybe, maybe. Yeah. After you get some distance between you. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you and the talk, to me a, yeah. talk to me a month after the book yeah. comes out. Right? Exactly. <laughs> right? exactly. I don't want anything right? to do with it. <laughs> absolutely. Sorry, true. Yeah. This has been great, but unfortunately we're out of time. So thank you so much for being on my show. It's been a real blessing to talk with you. I, I, I love this blog and I love the chance to talk with you about writing in my book. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah. Well, you have been listening to The Romantic Side of Suspense. I'm your host, Sarah Hammerker, and I've been talking with Dave Pratt. You can read more about him in the bio in the notes to this show and stay tuned for a short excerpt from his most recent romantic suspense, The Home Team. Now an excerpt from Home Team by Dave Pratt. Through the binoculars, Major Sam Anthem carefully scanned the small adobe shack, squatting in the middle of the clearing. Through the two open, paneless windows that he could see from his position, he methodically cataloged the silhouettes of three men facing away from him on the near side of the building's interior and two more leaning against the far wall. All held some sort of rifle. All but one looked quite young, perhaps in their teens and they must have been rank amateurs since they allowed someone on the outside to profile them. Sam squatted just inside a thick canopy of pine trees that towered over him. The lush green plant growth surrounding him would have been beautiful on a travel brochure, but in the oppressing midday Mexican heat on this humid morning, all he could smell was decaying vegetation and his own sweat. He brushed the thumb-sized beetle that perched on the toe of his soft-soled tactical boots. Sorry, little guy, he muttered. I'm not on your menu today. Still scanning the building's interior, he noticed one silhouette that stood out from the others. A female, and possibly the person identified in the morning's mission brief he and the other three members of his team had been provided before they infiltrated this portion of the Mexican countryside. A click sounded over the cochlear implant behind his left ear. Much like the implants used to aid the deaf, the implants he and his team used provided secure message radio reception. A button on the smartwatches they wore allowed them to change frequencies for the implants as well as provided a convenient microphone for transmitting. Home team, status? The voice sounded like the speaker stood right next to him, but it was transmitted from a small, nondescript office building in northern Florida, home base for the Extreme Operations Group. Overwatch, this is Mike Tango. Status is one and holding, Sam replied, using his call sign and the number one to indicate he'd arrived at his assigned checkpoint. Foxtrot X-ray, one and standing by, Alan Farrell added. A tall, lean 29-year-old with long blonde hair, fair skin, and eyes so blue they stopped men and women in their tracks, Alan was point for the mission. A skilled operator known as Fox to the members of the home team, Alan held multiple master-level certificates in Okinawan Karate, American Kenpo, and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, and functioned as the team's expert in all things explosive. Romeo Mike also status one and ready. Leah McCarthy, one of the two female members of his team, replied. Dubbed Romeo by the team, Leah was the team's armorer and sniper, 
at 5'1", 28 years old, with thick sunset bronze hair and wide dark eyes, she was often mistaken as the diminutive soft woman she appeared to be. It was a judgment people only made once about the strong, driven woman with whipcord muscles. She hated the Romeo moniker the team assigned her, insisting it should be used for a male team member, but it only encouraged her teammates to use the nickname more. The final member of the team, Jessica Falcone, was last to respond. This is Charlie Papa. Status is one and ready. She was a tall, elegant 30-year-old with thick hair the color of darkest night, bronze skin, and piercing brown eyes. Dud by the team as Cap, Jessica possessed the brain of Einstein, the trim of a professional athlete, and the fighting skills of a mixed martial arts champion, which she was. In addition to holding her own in just about any scrape, Cap guided the team through the myriad political and technological issues that confronted them as they carried out their unique sorts of missions that the Extreme Operations Group required. Sam considered the adobe hut before him as Overwatch reached out to him once more. Mike Tango, what's the hold? Sam sighed. He'd been looking forward to his team's latest mission, but more than once in recent months, he'd been diverted from the team's primary mission to clean up some secondary mess, such as rescuing yet another civilian who'd gotten lost in the jungle or kidnapped by bandits. I need a friggin' vacation, he whispered. Then felt guilty at the thought. When it came right down to it, he had little to complain about. Working for the U.S. State Department's Extreme Operations Group was what he'd trained for all his adult life. Rescuing this woman was a priority mission for his team, and today it would be his job to complete that mission. The group's director had briefed the team about a special non-governmental organization, or NGO, staff member missing in the area, Consuelo Zamora a popular Christian missionary and medical aid worker known throughout Mexico as Paloma Blanca. she disappeared two days before. They suspected kidnapping for ransom, but no ransom demand had yet materialized. The director designated her rescue as a high priority for the team should the opportunity arise, and it had. On his final scan of the tiny adobe hut, Sam caught a good look at the face of a woman as she leaned away from the building's shadowed back wall and into the light. She was beautiful. Slender build, dark eyes, raven-colored hair, and mocha skin. He could swear their eyes met when he paused to examine her face through his field glasses. He called up her photo on the small tablet computer strapped to his left forearm and compared it with the woman in the adobe. There could be no doubt. It was Consuelo. With the identity confirmed, Sam whispered into his wrist mic, This is Mike Tango. I have eyes on the secondary objective. She's captive in a small adobe 30 feet north of my location. I see five tangos with the subject, which seems like a lot of guards for a single hostage. Tangos are armed. Overwatch waited several beats before replying, Understood. There's no way they could know we would be looking for her today, 
so I'm uncertain why the numbers should be so high. Can you handle the rescue solo empty, or do you need assistance? That Overwatch dispensed with radio protocol and called him by his team nickname, Spoke Volumes, suggesting the staff at headquarters might share his frustration at one of their operatives being diverted from the team's primary mission. Today's op plan marked a major departure in how the group and its boss, the U.S. Secretary of State, dealt with drug cartels south of the Mexican border. A lot rested on the mission's first-time approach to addressing the constant drug flow into the United States and turning that around. Looks like amateur hour at this end, Overwatch, Sam replied. I'm good solo on this one. Roger, Mike Tango. Moving empty to the secondary frequency, Overwatch replied. Fox, Cap, and Romeo, you are go for the primary mission on the current frequency. Good luck, guys, Sam whispered. Thanks for listening to The Romantic Side of Suspense with Sarah Hammerker. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review. You can sign up to receive notifications of upcoming podcasts and listen to previous editions at Sarah Hammaker Fiction dot com.